ladies and gentlemen, we are where eagles dare. You've seen me enter the un-American anti-free speech sanctum of Seattle. You've seen us in Los Angeles. You've seen us in New York. But in my own hometown of my mother, right here in Austin, Texas, I will dare with these lovely intrepid ladies, with these lovely intrepid ladies, to not put my head in the mouth of a lion, but to march into some of the most trendy, enslaved, Google-head areas of Austin, Texas. Will hot coffee be dumped on us? Will I be attacked? Will they just scream the normal F you Russian agent go to hell? Because I'm not on the Russian payroll like Robert Mueller and Hillary Clinton. We don't know. But in America, we will dare to go into the no-go zone that is Austin, Texas, downtown, ladies and gentlemen. just eaten half of the roast chicken from the supermarket and I can feel my bones screaming to be freed from their prison of flesh and tendon. Stoned on poultry, I am a feathered god. I throw hot coffee into the devil's face. Cock of the walk? Hardly. But perhaps not every walk needs a cock. A shallow grave for my real friends. And a real grave for my shallow friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you absolutely Texan Screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. Scream your sense to me. I absolve you of them. Our guest this week is artist Ariel Jackson. From New Orleans to New York City to the unholy capital of Texas, she has lived a life of sculpture, video, and performance. Are you ready? Can you handle it? Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 58 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Big shout out to Cameron, Mike, and Barry, who all subscribed this week to Humor in the Abject on Drip. And thanks as always to each of you who show your support monthly with a subscription. 
I certainly don't make a living off of this thing by any stretch of the imagination, but your support does make this uh, project a little more possible. Uh, This is the last time that I'm going to plug this on the pod, but if you are in New York, come on out to Kickstarter in Greenpoint on Thursday night. Darcy Wilder, Ezekwe Mohammed, and I will be doing a live DSA podcast that stands for Darcy, Sean, and Ezekwe, and literally nothing else. And the event is 100% free. There's going to be food and drinks provided. I'll put the RSVP link in the episode description. This is a chance to catch live that sassy pod within a pod that is always hidden behind the drip paywall. Uh, And on Friday, I'm heading down to Philadelphia to do some interviews and really excited to visit that city once again. It's been a couple years, I think, since I was there last. I took a class to see at the ICA Philly, Jason Musson, Alex DeCorta, and Dev Hines's show, uh, Eastern Sports, which was super fun. And Alex did a very candid little artist tour of the show for us. Um, I'm going to be staying in South Philly and hoping to link up with some of the local listeners to smoke a beer or two. So hit me up uh, on this week's episode. I got on Skype with artist Ariel Jackson. She and I have known one another for a few years, and she's currently rounding out her first year in graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, That school, indeed, was lucky to coax her away from New York, and uh, it seems pretty clear that they know it. Ariel's work has sculpture, video, performance, installation. It's really heavily research-based. A lot of her concerns have to do with the history of African-American farming, and she throws in bits of conceptual science fiction as well that are uh, really wonderful. If you aren't familiar with her stellar work, check out her Instagram. It's at Ariel Jackson Studio. She's been posting lots of the new projects that she's undertaking while she's in school, and you can scroll back through and see this history of her aesthetics and critical concerns um, dating back uh, to like 2015 and earlier when she was doing Confucerella and all these projects about the blues and performance stuff and these residencies that she's done. Really awesome person. Uh, I'm so glad that she took time out. She's just about to do her first year review, so I'm sure she was swamped, but she got on Skype with me anyways from her studio. So uh, here's my conversation with Ariel Jackson. One freezing from social malpractice to the first Screedler who tweets me the name of this ridiculous song. Okay, and we're live. Okay, cool. Uh, Ariel Jackson, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So several years back, uh, you and I met through mutual friends kind of associated with Cooper Union, uh, where you went for undergrad and also because you were one of the summer artists in residence when Andrea Rubla and I were running the program at BHQFU back in the East Village. Um, And at the time you were working conceptually with this concept of the blues and channeling your research through a character called Confucerella. Uh, Would you talk a little bit about when these ideas crept into your work um, and what you were making? I mean, this is around like 2015, I guess. So a few years back, what you were making at the time? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I went to New York for the first time in 2009 because I got into the Cooper Union. Um, Whoop, whoop. And while I was there, I was really struggling with trying to find my community. So I found myself actually in a far off place um, called Far Rockaway. And it was there that Confucerella was born. And I think about why she was created a lot because I was going 
based on intuition at the time. But um, looking back, she was really like a manifestation of all my frustrations of moving from the South to the North and the kind of culture shock that goes with it. And then over time, while I was at Cooper and developing who she was, was to me, um, I started developing her storyline and it just seemed to make sense that she would be battling the blues Mm -hmm. um, because in my mind, I was also battling the blues, um, battling depression, battling, um, you know, just like having just come from experiencing Hurricane Katrina, it seemed to make sense. So it's sort of where the narrative has been based off of is my experience in Hurricane Katrina. And at the time I was looking, um, I was really getting my life through Dave Chappelle and Paul Mooney and just seeing how they were able to shift like, you know, all these crappy situations into something, um, laughable. Yeah. Uh, and there's like a level of insanity in that. So yeah, I think I was like insane for a few years <laughs> <laughs> um, and like using humor and sort of my childhood intuition of like using clay, trying to shape, literally shape my reality. Um, so fast forward to after Cooper Union being at BH. QFU, I really wanted to make that world real, mm-hmm. which seems crazy to me thinking back. It's like, why would you want to make real this insane reality that you created? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, because I really wanted other people to um, be part of that altered reality of mine, because I felt like I was hearing similar stories of people just like, Either what, either it's dealing with depression, dealing with police brutality, dealing with um, financial crap. Um, it just felt like it was relevant for me at the time. Yeah. So then, when I um, actually, what caused a shift was a family uh, death of mine. So my uncle, he lives, he lived in Louisiana, in rural Louisiana, and he passed away all of a sudden due to like an extreme, like a crazy accident. And, um, like, unfortunately a lot of people do in the country, um, just freak accidents happen. Wow. And so after he passed away, my family sat down and started talking about the land. And this is something like I never thought about really. Um, is that is the fact that my family owns, um, 45 acres in Louisiana, but they once owned 300 over 300 acres. And I, I just, you know, oh, we're going to grandma's house. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. Just like, oh yeah, we're going to see grandma and grandpa. Uh-huh. They live in this far off land or whatever. So that like concept of a far off land or something that I'm not sure what it means has always been there in the same way as like Confucerella. Um, and so that made me start thinking like, you know, okay, like enough about me. What is, what does it mean to be part of a family that is then telling you this land will soon be yours. And it's like, well, what, what do I know about this land? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's a, I mean, the, the idea of land is, uh, to have that past. I mean, I guess maybe you and I are of a generation where it's just like that, at least to me, like the idea of any type of property has been like, Oh, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, like I'm in New York struggling to even just have a room. (laughs) Uh And then they're (laughs) like, and now there's 45 acres. What would you like to do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it definitely for me sounds like, 
episode out of like the the adventures of Confucerella, but uh-huh. I didn't feel like it was appropriate to handle it that way. And like I said, I was already just wanting people to experience what that world is. So then I started making um, sort of uh, these stuffed or these like plush type plush type uh, plants that have text on them that explain. Uh, what happened to African-Americans during the, well, during the civil rights movement, but um, but going up until the 80s. So there was this case called Pickford versus Glickman, where an African-American farmer um, sued, um, I believe they sued FHA, uh, FHA mm. um, basically saying that they had written contracts to all these African-American farmers with a detail in them that basically causes their interest rates to exceed what they're able to afford. And so with my grandparents not being able to go to uh, school past a certain grade level because of racism, uh, they were not able to keep up with the, with the interest rate. And so they ended up having to sell their land. So, yeah, so that just became like this whole, like, um, this this whole this point in my life where I felt like I really needed to understand who my family was yeah. and by extension what Louisiana is and then like you know who America is and and so I was starting to go away from this alternate universe and trying to go back into the real world but in a way that um, allowed me to really uh really flesh out how I felt about it because information, you know, information is accessible, but emotions aren't. Mm -hmm. And I became really interested in that. And so now that I'm in Texas, I've been, um, my work has gotten a little bit more serious, but uh, essentially I'm like really interested in like the fusion of culture and place Mm -hmm. um, and using geography to talk about, um, that journey from one point to another. So one of the things that Confucerella talks about is like getting from the obsession of getting from point A to point B. And so for me now, um, you know, that's a conversation people are having very seriously in academia, but just like in day to day interactions of just like trying to get from this point to that point, whether that's through success or through ownership of land, um, or just survival. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like, how am I going to make it from my job to my home place without, you know, any interaction that might potentially end up with me being dead? Yeah. And wow. So there are these um, there's a lot of these awesome folks who are talking about um, t- cartography and geography as an extension of identity. So that's where my head has always been, I think. But now I'm at a place where I I can fully understand like the decisions that I make that I've made and how it like relates to now. So that's like, that's the journey. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the, um, Confucerella as a character too, because it, yeah, as you're saying this, it really was about this kind of mapping or these understandings of these different places. And Confucerella was from a place called Panfrica. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and it was it had this really like science fiction kind of element, but it was also like you said it was there's was a lot of humor and it was sort of playful and it almost seems like through that work you built even if it was subconsciously this architecture to 
um, transpose that onto something really literal and real uh, in the United States. Like you kind of figured out all of these different ways that you could make form out of your interests and then all of a sudden boom instead of it being this abstract fictional place you're applying that to very real things that have to do with your family history and the history of the united states by extension right exactly and i mean like i'm i am at a point now where i'm like how can that language that intuitive language of using color and um narrative how can that enter the space again sure and i find that through honestly curating. Huh. Um, and I've had the opportunity just to like know you and know a bunch of awesome curators and just really think about how pieces are placed in a space to tell a story. Um, and so like in my studio right now, I have all my work that I'm going to be presenting from uh, my midterm. And it feels like a classroom, but it also feels like a narrative of material and just sort of like some things are funnier than others and some things are more serious than others. For instance, I made a connect four um, well, structure. Yeah, like the, I can, you know, like the big ones that are like out in the back of people's yards. Yeah, people can't see it. right? I mean, I can see it because I'm talking to you over video, but I saw you posted it on Instagram too. And it was, I think, yeah. did you say like games from hell or something? Or, yeah. was, it, or did, was that so, the title or was that simply like where your head was at? Because you were That's where my head it. was at, man. It's called, so oh, it's, it's like actually games called games from hell. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> So that is so, okay. So this over the break, I was like, I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm not making Confucerella work anymore, but I can still pull from that. And so I started sort of writing what her mission is mm -hmm. and I wanted her mission to be to develop games that, um, help people, I guess, navigate the, the nuances and the overt issues of identity like yeah. with games and so in my mind i was like okay i'm gonna get like um, somebody who knows how to make like video games and stuff like that mm -hmm. so i was like you know what i could probably just make a game yeah. and so at the time i was reading a lot about intersectionality and um and sort of just like trying to understand visually what that is mm. so um so yeah so it's a connect four from hell but it's <laughs> actually titled <laughs> suspended grid so it's a lot more serious than than what it actually is but the way i talk about it is very silly i think but it actually creates a barrier in the space right now yeah it's and big. that is yeah and a lot of people are like is that a guillotine like that's what i saw you i saw <laughs> one of the comments on instagram was uh pastiche lumumba who also uh i've had on the podcast before and is a, a good friend but yeah he said that reminds me of guillotines and i yeah, thought oh my so god yeah it, it I never thought about that on a Connect Four, but totally, yeah. Like. Yeah, and it's, and it's totally. So the way that I've shifted the game is that you get um, eight pieces, mm -hmm. and each of those pieces has engraved into it. I can show it to you in a second, but um, on the top of each one is um, is part of how intersectionality breaks down identity. So you have class, you have language, you mm -hmm. have disability, you have race you have ethnicity race and ethnicity get really funny um yeah yeah <laughs> just because it's like a question of like wait didn't i already answer this question you're asking me my ethnicity now i just told you my race hmm. like and so each of the pieces is actually um a piece of chalkboard and you write your identity on it okay and then you're playing with those pieces against the other person 
And so like at the I- end is of- it like an identity war? Yeah. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> heavy, I know. I like yeah. it. No, that's it's very heavy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So after whoever wins, which I I played the first two times, and then I realized I'm too good. Uh, I'm too good. <laughs> oh, you designed it. Yeah. You're like. I mean, but also like I guess my strategy is like really good when I'm playing Connect Four, which is interesting to me to think about that because um, everybody that I've been playing. Um, is the opposite of me, whether, you know, cause I'm a black woman. So I've been playing with, with men of color, white men, mm-hmm. women of color, white women. And I realized, you know, it's more interesting to have other people play and for me to be the host. Sure. So I'm in my mind, I'm sort of bringing back one of my other characters, Dr. Amarika, uh-huh. who is a shrink for Confucerella and also a sort of, part-time everything professor. So she basically translates the score onto a scoreboard. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're not sure who's playing who. And so the identities start to fall apart. That's really interesting. And it's cool that you are able to link these, what would seem like really disparate practices, but to be able to hybridize them together, because I do feel like, I mean, I myself, and I think a lot of people, you kind of have this period where you did this work And then it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to tie that up with a bow and leave it behind. And now I'm doing this other stuff. And I'm always fascinated when people can, I mean, you, you explained too, that you were writing this mission as Confucerella for, um, to drive this work and where it was going to go. And that's pretty cool that the things that you spent so much time on don't just sit in the past, even if like you're saying, maybe aesthetically or slightly conceptually, they don't fit in exactly and you're still able to utilize them in your toolkit. That's a, that's tough. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because I really, I really wanted to kill off Confucio. <laughs> I think every, like, everybody who makes up an alter ego, that's like the, it's like, when am I going to kill this thing? Right. Like, <laughs> well, because it becomes an extension of yourself and as much as it might be um, an exaggeration or a parody or any of these things, you, you start to see yourself in it too much maybe. And you're kind of like, I got, no, nah, I got to get rid of that. <laughs> I so I tell people like the reason why I don't do Confucerella anymore explicitly um, is because I went through what I call the Dave Chappelle effect and break that like, down for me. I think I know what you're. Yeah. I think I know. <laughs> so Dave Chappelle is, you know, he had the Chappelle show for a long time, and then at a certain point, he just dipped out and went to Africa, and he talked about it later. I think he was on Inside the Actor's Studio. And he was talking about how at a certain point he realized that people weren't laughing with him. They were laughing at him. Sure, yeah. And, uh, or at least that's how he felt. And I recognized that feeling because for me, Confucerella was um, initially based on this stereotype that I felt like I could never fulfill and wanting to poke holes in that. So Confucerella, when I um, first started developing her, I wanted to piss people off. Uh-huh. And I wanted um, people to sort of be like, you know, oh, my God, this, this stereotype, you know, but a stereotype that doesn't fulfill itself in being a stereotype because, you know, she's not from here. She's trying to fit in in the ways that she sees is working. Yeah. Uh, Could you just really quickly, what what is, what's... Confucerella's vibe, like aesthetic, and right. just kind of. So, 
her aesthetic has changed. Originally, she wore a blonde wig and she wore the same polka dot dress and her day job was dancing and music videos. Um, and that was how she paid her rent. Um, but all the whole time, she's actually supposed to be on a mission um, to learn about the blues in order to develop ways to um, alleviate its effects on her people back in Pancrica. But while she's there in Plastica, she has to survive. And so the process of survival shifts her into, forces her into this uh, stereotypical position. Mm-hmm. And so she's um, sort of giving in at times and then pushing back at other times, um, remembering what her mission is and then saying, well, there's no mission if I can't survive. And so for me, that meant a lot. But then after a while, I felt like the way that I was portraying her, it was a reflection of how I wanted to be when I was younger, wanting to spin. Um, But then I had to ask myself, you know, is this really who I am? Because it got to a point where people were expecting Confucerella when I would show up. Yeah. And that's where I thought it was getting dangerous because then people expected that I would always be Confucerella. That's, Um, that's, I remember, you know, Jason Musson. Yeah. Yeah. I remember him saying he would go to talk at a school and people would just be like, Oh, where's Hennessy Youngman? Right. And he was like, that's clearly a character. Like, so, but so clearly a character, <laughs> like, what are you, right. but yeah, I mean, and they, you know, these aren't people who are total idiots. They, they know that it's like blah, blah, but they're like, oh, but you are that, that's who you are. I get it. Yeah, I mean, she, you so know, when you see somebody, but yeah. So, uh, just like Dave Chappelle, I went to Africa. Uh-huh. Yeah. You went to Senegal, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you do it? Were you doing an artist residency? Though? I'm trying to remember because I, I remember when you were just like, yeah, I'm going to Africa for a while. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. That's a change. <laughs> it's like Dave Chappelle, man. Oh, like, man. Nobody saw it coming. Wait, did you do that on purpose? Were you, were you consciously like, okay, Chappelle did this. I'm going to, or are you just now in reflection? You're like, holy shit, I followed this trajectory too. I think so. Both. Uh, like, I was thinking about it, mm. but actually, so the opportunity came to me through a good friend of mine uh, who worked at Mokata Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora and Art mm-hmm. that's in Brooklyn. And they were starting up this exchange program type thing where they would send artists to this residency in Senegal. Um, it's called Thread. Okay. And basically what it is is um, you live in a village. The village is called Sinchian. And you just like make work if you want to. You could meditate. You could use the time to reflect. And so when I got the opportunity, I knew that I wanted to go there to study rice because I was reading um, Judith Carney's book on the history of black rice. And the reason why I was interested is because my grandparents grew rice in Louisiana and, you know, going back to the whole like, okay, you're going to own this land. It's like, what is, what was this land used for? And so I started doing that research on my own. The opportunity came and actually my roommates were like, you have got to go. Cause I was like, yo, I can't just go to Africa. (laughs) like all this stuff when when did you go remind me when you went again so i went um last year that's what 2018 yeah january to uh mid-february okay 
And did you know already that you were going to be going to, I know that you had obviously applied to graduate school, but did you, did you know that you had gotten in or where you were going at that point? So that's funny. Yeah. I I had already been in a process of applying and I, so I applied to UT, um, university of Texas at Austin and they're the first people who got back to me, but I had to explain to them. I was like, I don't have electricity. <laughs> oh, oh, you were <laughs> in like, you were in Senegal. When you... I was in Senegal, and they were wow. like, "Well, you know, can we have a phone conversation?" So I had to like be in Tambacounda, the nearest uh, town, in this one office that was the only office that had reliable internet uh-huh. at like seven p.m. because that was like you know the time change, and it was great. I mean, just talking to him, I was like, I mean, I'm here. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's... I'm here on site. And the school prides itself on being a research facility. Yeah. So... yeah. It's a big, big ass college. That's where Cla- yeah. Yeah, Claire's uh, mom and stepdad both work there. They're scientists uh, at UT. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, it basically just all worked out, but all the whole time I was like, man, I was like, if this isn't like Dave Chappelle, you know, like I was going with, (laughs) but I knew like at the time how kind of ridiculous this was, you know, in thinking about where I was and where I am now. I just love that you like applied and wrote this proposal and you're like, this is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. And then when they get in touch with you, you're like literally in the field doing research. You're like, yes, uh, I, I, will, I, can, uh, I can talk to you at this time because I mean, just like, but like talk about walking the walk. You know what I mean? Like where, when they try to get in touch, you're just like, uh, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, I have to go help these ladies. Like tend to their garden that's yeah. what so were you um, were you making work or just did you feel like you were treating it like a research trip mostly um both yeah i think so the two other artists i was with were i mean they're awesome folks they're good friends of mine and they saw me like you know working and they were like why are you working like you're out in the middle of nowhere you can sit down and like look at the stars <laughs> And that's what I did. Uh, I did that and I was reading and I can't help myself. I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I always have to do stuff. (laughs) 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 So what I did was uh, I filmed. I filmed a lot. I talked to people a lot. Um, I wanted to understand what how they identified modern technology. Yeah. And because they kept saying, like, we're teaching we're teaching the women in this village modern technology so they can take care of their garden, hmm. you know. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, what modern technology are you talking about? And so, it's, like, modern technology, the term is so relative. Yeah, now. no, entirely. I mean, it's it's funny to think of like a like at one point a stagecoach was tech was technology. Exactly. Like, so yeah, modern. Yeah, what modern? What were they doing? Well, so what they were teaching them was. Um, how to when you're turning the the land with your tools not to walk over it as you're turning it okay sort of kind of like common sense type stuff well i, um, I mean I, w- I would be I, I don't know shit about farming i, mean, I would have been, exactly. wa- been walking all over like and um so but well one of the other things was uh because it's so dry in senegal they would have the women, um, they taught the women how to create a moat around each of the plants. Hmm. So when they would uh, pour the water in, the water would stay there and the plant would get all the moisture okay. instead of just out on the surface. So things like that. And um, so it really shifted my whole like understanding of what technology was. Sure. And um, 
and how I understood it. So I started going back to Judith Carney, started looking into the older traditions of rice farming. Mm-hmm. And she basically uh, talks about how those systems were brought over the Atlantic through slavery to uh, parts of the coast in America. So what ended up happening is um, you have places like North and South Carolina, Carolina's rice, Carolina's best. Yeah, uh, yeah. The history of that is a merging of European and African technologies in order to um, grow the type of rice that they were growing in West Africa in America because there's a similarity in the geography. Um, and so I found that fascinating. Yeah. I found that fascinating. And so uh, the main thing that I did while I was there was create um, a tool that Judith Carney talks about. And so I wonder if I'm related uh, to this lady. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're like long. I, don't know, I just looked. I just looked her up on my phone um, while you were talking. She's got red hair, so maybe she's Irish. Maybe we have some weird <laughs> relationship. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> way back in the day, or I thought so. I looked. I mean, it was whatever. It was the first image result on Google Image Search. I don't know actually if it was her or who it was, but I was <laughs> red hair. No. Oh yeah, yeah. She's super light skinned Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she does have red hair. Maybe That's we're true. cousins. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, who knows, man? Um, you know, a lot of a lot of surprises in oh, American background. Yeah, that's um. Gosh, the idea though. I mean, as you're talking about this and kind of unpacking it, just how narrow I guess my perception of when I hear technology, what I think of is, uh, it's prof. Can can something be profoundly narrow? <laughs> it seems like it would be not. <laughs> Maybe, maybe seems like it doesn't work, but, um, yeah. So anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> just no, getting it. Yeah. I, mean, I just usually only hear my last name said in like a disparaging way about someone who like swindled someone out of something that like that Carney <laughs> stole my money. <laughs> so it's nice when it's like in an academic setting. She's <laughs> <laughs> doing good. <laughs> doing um, yeah, no. So I, yeah, I made a tool, um, I forgot the actual name of it. Um, is it like a farming tool? It is a farming tool, and I wish I listen to me. Like I'm going to guess what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I'm, is there a thing I mean, called a tithe? Is that a thing? I mean, it's called. It's called. <laughs> it's called different things. Okay. Um, like I just Wikipedia it, and it says uh, kajandu, but. It's a long piece of wood that has a piece of metal around the, at the, on the tip. And so basically it's for the men to like pull up a large amount of ground at one time okay, and flip it over and then just doing that. And then the women would go after them and start to, you know, take out the weeds and sort of just like till it. So it's like the first wave of tilling a rice field. And so um, I had the piece made by a local carpenter and a metalsmith, and I gifted it to um, to the women in Sinchan. And so I don't know if it's if they're still using it, but <laughs> but they were just like because you know it's from their area, but because of you know history and time, they didn't know what it was. Interesting, um, yeah. And I mean, it's still being used, but I mean, it's, it's just not in that area. Hmm. And so I like the idea and the like 
I like the idea of giving a gift that is a gift of history. Mm-hmm. That is that is a tool that can be used. Yeah. Um, but it's like on the same site that it came from. Is this is the research that you were doing while you were there? Did you do you did a performance like like a year ago at Dixon Place? Was yes. it about this residency? It was. I mean, I was trying to figure out how to because, OK, one of the things that you learn in just going overseas, especially when you're living with people in parts of Africa, is that you have to really check your privilege um, and not just pull out your camera because you're like, oh, my God, people still live this way. Sure, you know, of course. And, yeah. Um, and that's something I had to check um, for myself. And being there, you know, I'm an American and some of the people, you know, would even go to say that I'm white because of my relationship with America mm-hmm. being skinned and wearing pants. <laughs> huh. And um, so I really had to check myself. And when I came back, I was like, I have all this footage, but I don't like I have a lot of great footage, but I don't I had to really be careful about how I portrayed them. Absolutely. So, yeah. 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 And so what I ended up doing was um, cropping out certain parts in order to focus on what their hands were doing um, and focusing on aspects of the garden and using that as like the moment of reflection where I'm translating. Um, So for the performance, I have a video of those cropped images surrounded by blue. And I started, um, I had a overhead projector, like old school overhead projector and started basically drawing, um, these images over each other, sort of like a, um, a conglomerate of experiences I had, but trying to focus on what's important. Yeah. And so your, your hands, your hands are doing, you're doing tasks with your hands on this overhead projector in the same way. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I'm still thinking about what that performance was. And I think that was a shift in how I understand the blues, understood the blues, because I spoke to someone and they challenged me and they were like, well, the blues isn't all bad. And I was like, oh, snap, you're right. Hmm. (laughs) I was like, the blues is a combination of joy and sadness. It's not completely about, you know, being depressed. Um, You know, and the history of the blues in America, you know, gave birth to jazz and rock. And so Mm -hmm. um, both of those genres have a lot of, um, a lot of both joy and pain aspects to them. And that's why people, you know, have these kind of spiritual experiences in both genres. Yeah. Um, It's funny. You said earlier about how something that you're doing, how you could access information, but not emotions. Exactly. It seems very much like that's related to this, where it's like this, this spectrum of unnameable, that combination of like joy and like despair, like all of it wrapped up into it. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can read a, you can read a book about the history of the blues or something, but you have to, you have to do a different kind of like attempted, almost like spiritual connection or something to get to the emotions that uh, are wrapped up in that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that complicated a lot of things for me. Um, Like how do I, how do I handle, sorry, how do I, not enter a point of exploiting mm-hmm. people, including myself, um, and really trying to capture the presence of human emotions. Yeah. 
And so like, it's for no, instance, no small I, task that you set up for yourself. No, <laughs> no. And so like, I actually like, I don't, I don't, um, instead of talking about the blues, I rather try to make my work, um, embody the blues. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been like the transformation. Like I feel like with Confucerella and the blues, that was very much superficial. Um, but I mean, it, it, it did a lot for me because it just like threw me in the trenches of, you know, the issues that it brought up and as well as like, you know, the breakthroughs that it provided. Yeah. And now I feel like my work is sort of taking out the nuanced aspects of that work and trying to, um, let it guide me in this sort of, um, kind of spiritual research, okay. I would say. Cause I'm not like, I'm not out here trying to write a paper. Mm-hmm. I don't think if I tried, but I feel like there is something to say about presenting work in a way where it feels like you're learning something that is, um, that is going in cycles. So like when about like, you know, didactic work, um, artwork, it's, it's trying to teach you something specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, like you need to know this. Yeah. And so what I've been doing is like using didactic tools, like within the classroom, chalkboard, material, um, uh, yeah, chalkboard material and the classroom setup as a way to sort of present like this, like anticipation, like, oh, we're going to learn something today. But what is being there's there's not really a clear lesson being learned or sort of like an emotion that's being um uh, put into the space. Sure. It, it seems so much the way that you're describing it, that your work is, um, almost gotten to this point where, and I don't know if it's being in school or just having the time to focus, but all of a sudden it's like, it's, um, and you talked about just a moment ago about these, uh, these cycles that happen. And I'm thinking about how sort of embedded in the now your work is, whereas previously, and I know, and I don't know if you would describe it as this. I've just seen, you know, when I don't know if it's institutionally convenient for a place to sort of say, "Oh, Ariel's work um, engages with notions of Afrofuturism," and that's sort of this um, combining of past aesthetics and music and things like that with a sort of futurism and an idea of something else. And so there's these two planes of time out on either side, um, and it seems like you were sort of navigating between those and your research looks into those because I know you have a lot of thoughts on science fiction too and then now it's like really here and now like it's very present which is kind of a kind of an interesting place to be I think yeah it's a challenging place to be (laughs) it's tough because well it's so much more I don't even know if this is the right way to describe it but like you're immediately accountable for it because it's dealing with the now instead of like a speculative past or future um there's more it it almost seems like there's more at stake especially if you're involving people which i know you did a lot of performance stuff before and you've done video and these things that kind of have this interaction kind of embedded in them just by the way that viewers encounter that work but now it sounds like you're really you're inviting people in to be part of it which is um it can be scary as the artist, you know, because you're like, how much control do I exert versus how much do I allow for room for improvisation or play or what have you? It's true. It's really true. I mean, just I'm still struggling with this connect four piece. Uh, I'll keep I'll refer to it as um, 
suspended grid just because I'm like, that is the name. Ooh, that's, that very, that's very arty. Yes. Suspended yeah. grid. I like that. Yeah. It sounds like a... <laughs> well, because, like, I thought so... <laughs> it's like a Donald the... Judd thing or something. <laughs> <laughs> suspended um, grid. Be like, that's a connect for... It's a suspended grid. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why I came up with that name, aside from being a bit of a douche... <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm really hard on myself, but whatever. Um but no, the the definition came from like the the frustration I had in actually finding the name for the game because uh-huh. we all like like in America we understand it as Connect 4, but you go somewhere else and it's known as something completely different. Huh. Okay. So, I was like, well, you know, uh, what is the definition of it? It's like it is a suspended grid. I was like, got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it it is what it is. Um and so yeah, I've been struggling right now with uh trying to figure out what my role is yeah. in hosting the game and whether or not that requires me to dress up any different or hmm. if it's a matter of just accessing um the state of mind of Dr. Amarika and presenting myself as that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've been working some of the other stuff that you've been making has this kind of, I don't know if, um, I don't know how to describe the aesthetic exactly, but sort of educational or pedagogical. There's one I'm thinking of that I saw you posted on Instagram a little while ago. That was, um, uh, the, the soil, the desk that was made of soil. Yeah. It's a chair. A it's an old school, like a uh, writing desk, right? Like a, like yeah. a student's desk with the kind of um, the thing on the, oh, I don't even know. What is the, yeah, the surface that you write on while you sit in a chair? Whatever that's called. I can't <laughs> believe I don't know what that is called. <laughs> it's a desk. It's like a, yeah, yeah it's what, whatever. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the actual name is. What is for. that? How, wait, is that actually made entirely of soil? Mm, oh well, no you don't have to tell me don't tell me no <laughs> i i like that i don't know um but you did some close-ups of it and i was just like what the hell is this made out like but it's mm. it's interesting i mean and it has this kind of it has a very um obviously it has a very classroom aesthetic on purpose and i assume that that's about a historical education kind of perspective or what? something um the Prussian and, model. yeah and that's more like and I guess that would be more sculptural versus these other ones that are very interactive, which maybe that's those are the ones that I'm thinking are like now, now, now kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this one, I mean, it's it's the past like here, I guess. Yeah. Well, in, that- in the funny, I mean, and I guess the past is never really the I mean, it's embedded in <laughs> everything. <Well>, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, though. Um, so with with that piece. Um, I was thinking a lot about the Horace Mann's Prussian model of the classroom, which is like the the factory model. Mm. We know it, I think, more so uh, as that. And so the factory model uh, was introduced by Horace Mann as a a departure from charity schools where – Charity schools was like, you know, let's teach all the little poor children how to read. Mm. Whereas the Horace Mann, the Prussian model was like, let's get these kids ready for the industrialization age, you know, and um, let's take them out of the fields and get them ready for factories. That sounds so, a lot like STEM and STEAM in the classroom now, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> let's, teach, exactly. let's teach these kids to code. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I mean, like that, that piece is, um, I think, what you said earlier about my practice being a hybrid, um, it, it continues in this way in that like I'm 
I'm still, I'm interested in interactive works or like video works that suggest an end result, but never give one. Mm-hmm. But so with like, uh, sculptures that sort of have this question of perhaps how they were made, what the material actually is. Um, and I guess that's like, I haven't figured that one out yet. I, I think that work is really sort of an intuitive piece for me right now. Yeah. Whereas the works like have resulted after, you know, or as I'm doing this like specific research and thinking about the cause and effects of that research. Whereas this one, it's, I think, it, I think because it's so embedded in the past, it's almost like uh, an homage hmm. to that. Um, more so like a, almost like, a like an altar or something like a very simplified altar. Like if my grandparents made an altar, that's what it would look like. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And you, um, I mean, you've referenced geography a couple of times, so I'm wondering too, if the, I mean, it's a big switch to go from you were living in New York city to go to living in Austin. And I'm wondering if the, has the environment, um, changed the way that you were, I mean, obviously we, respond to our environment but is there anything specifically related to your research whether it has to do with the history of farming or education or anything like that around the specific geography that you're in these days that is kind of finding its way into what you're doing uh so that that actually that comes into my work in terms of material so the soil that i get is um from this company called Little Sea Landscape. And so they basically collect topsoil from Southeast Austin. Hmm. And Southeast Austin was a predominantly black and Latino community and has since um, been largely gentrified. And so it was important for me that the soil comes from that location. Yeah. Um, sort of just like, and so mm, in a few weeks or in a week, I'll be doing an installation where I um, create soil balloons. Um, oh, I saw a couple images of those too. So that's prep work for an installation where I'm going to be installing those balloons um, on a grid inside of a big cage. Okay. It's going to be outside of this place that you should check out next time you come to Austin, the Museum of Human Achievement. Oh, Claire um, told me about that. M-O-H-A, right? It's like a yeah. like art collective kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. just told it's, me about that. Um, it's a pretty cool spot. It reminds me a lot about a lot. It reminds me a lot of VHQFU, um, but it's mainly because it's like this open space for a lot of people to um, come through that are creatives and sort of make the space their own. Yeah, I saw Uh, some of the, I mean, they do music, they do all kinds of stuff too, right? It's not strictly, like, it's not just like capital A art kind of thing. It's a much, much different minded kind of space. Exactly. So one of the, a recent grad named, uh, named Ryan Hawk, he has been running the Cage Match um, project, which is this Cage (laughs) I know, I know, I know. It's up your alley, I think. Um, so it's this big cage that they found. Somebody had it where I think they kept chickens inside. Okay, yeah. It's a weird chicken coop thing. Uh, and so now it's it's been cleaned out, and it sits right in front of MoHa, the Museum of Human, Achieve- Human Achievement. And they choose artists to do like these temporary installations outside and it's open to the elements. Um, and so I'm excited about that because you know, this, what we're, 
your question of like, is there a chair in there or not? Mm. Um, I'm thinking about sort of like the reveal of something like that. Uh, so I'll be installing these um, soil balloons um, whose colors correlate to the map that real estate agents have been and probably still use uh, that encourage redlining. Mm. So wow. And so hopefully it rains because if that happens, the true color of the balloons will be revealed. Interesting. Wow. So they, yeah, because they'll have this kind of like entropy element where they're literally, how long are they up for? Two weeks. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, lots of potential there for different kind of natural responses. That's cool. Exactly. Yeah, I could I gotta check that out next time I come. Well, I don't know. Maybe I want to see documentation of that. But yeah, I want to see that space too. It sounds cool. Um, sounds, you should go to their website because they have like their homepage is this gnarly scene of people in masks and there's like a <laughs> dust cloud and they're like in and out of the cage. It's really bizarre. Uh, <laughs> check that out. That sounds cool. It's called, <laughs> it's called Cage Match, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. That the sounds, Cage Match Project. Because so if you look up Cage Match. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Well, I know that you you know, you have a lot to get to and you're uh, approaching your probably like a first year review or like your show or midterms or whatever you're describing. So I don't want to keep you too long. But uh, the last thing that I wanted to ask was, you know, you've you um, you grew up in New Orleans, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I say it wrong? New Orleans? I feel like uh, I feel like I'm a poser if I say it. New Orleans is fine. As long as you don't say New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. <laughs> I don't know. But anyways, um, so you've lived there, you lived in New York City, now you live in Austin. So you've lived in these like pretty killer like food cities. Um, I mean, you've certainly like been in places that have amazing things to eat. And I just got to know if there's any meals or anything that uh, you got turned on to now that now that you're sort of like, at least temporarily a Texan. Oh my God. Like, have you changed your, <laughs> are you just, are you just eating ass loads of barbecue now? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, actually, so I, um, uh, my boyfriend right now, he. Uh, I love the right now it, qualifier. What? I love that <laughs> my boyfriend right now. Just you know, no, time no. time stamp it. Just <laughs> I'm teasing care. you. <laughs> he doesn't care. Um, you can keep that in. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's uh he's Puerto Rican and Mexican. So we've been like and his family's like kind of low key obsessed with uh Louisiana Creole food. Oh. So we've been trading no um shit. actually. Ooh. So we've been yeah, making paella and um and jambalaya and so I mean, we've been mostly like just cooking. Um yeah. but oh what What's the name of Topo Chico? Do you know Topo oh, Chico? Oh yeah, the 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 mineral, the fizzy mineral water. I got turned on to that. Oh yeah, I yeah. I had some at Thanksgiving. Claire's mom had a ton of it, and I I'd seen it before. You know, it's like a pretty <clears throat> excuse me, like recognizable bottle. And I was like, oh, I, I think I've seen that before. And then I don't know what it is. I had one, and it was ice cold. And I took a drink of it, and I was like, what? What is? Hello. Like, yes. you know, New York's a seltzer town. Like people are really into their seltzer water here, but I never had that. And now, and they just started selling it on the corner at the grocery store near me. So really? it's, okay, it's well, really expensive yeah. here though. Oh yeah. No, it's super cheap here. Oh, <laughs> and that was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. That was like the, 
that was something that I was like, oh my God, because it's so hot here. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm just going to be drinking bottles of water. <laughs> and then I got Topo Cheek and I was like, oh, this feels like, you know, I'm being naughty, but I'm really taking care of myself. Yeah, actually. yeah. You get a little fizz, you get a little, little bump going on from that. That's nice. <laughs> um, breakfast tacos. Oh, There's yeah. Taco deli, but I'm kind of breakfast tacoed out. So I have to be in the mood. That can get, yeah, I think every time that I go there, I have them uh, every single day. And because I'm visiting, I'm like, hell yeah. But yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to shake that up a little bit if it, like, I couldn't eat Migas every single day. I think I'd, I think I'd go a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't, not all the time. Um, there's also, um, so I went to a crawfish boil yesterday evening and they, they put, pineapple in the crawfish bowl mm. and at first i was like oh no see <laughs> like yeah that's a good thing it actually it has no effect on it like on the crawfish or anything like that and instead huh. you just have this like piece of pineapple that's infused with all these spices oh yeah yeah what is it like a and bunch of old bay and stuff like that in it <laughs> much yeah dude I, we had i bought some old bay a little bit ago and i was making some i don't know i was like cooking some vegetables or something and they just had like they were in like some olive oil or something and i popped the top of the old bay so it's just a, like you know the sifter like just you know like mm -hmm. a salt and pepper shaker kind of thing and i just did one shake and the top open and the entire tin of old bay <laughs> dump and it was like it was like a bunch it was a lot of vegetables and i was like oh shit and i was scraping it out with a spoon and looking up online what to do and it was like try adding lemon juice or like if it's appropriate put some yogurt in it and i ended up with just this mess of like bright orange gooey vegetables and uh we tried to eat it but i was just like i i don't think i can have old bay now i was like you know when you have you ever eaten something then like you're sweating it out the next day? Like you can smell the like herbs or whatever else you had. Like if you had too much garlic, it was like I smelled like Old Bay for like three days. It was really bad. That sounds hilarious. Yogurt? Ew. I know. I it was just like I was desperate and I had ruined all of the vegetables. That we had. <laughs> I was supposed to cook them on. I just oh destroyed them. Fucked it up. But um, oh, well, cool. So I'm Topo sorry. Chico and I gotta. I'll tell uh. I'll tell Jen Katrin and Paul Outlaw who do, they love to do crawfish boils because they're from the South and uh, I'll tell them about the, uh, the pineapple hack. I'd be a whole cell, but, um, <laughs> you know, people are very, yeah. They're... I don't think they'd like, uh, a kid from the Midwest giving them any suggestion. Be like, my friend told me that they had it. With my... They'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, man. I feel like you got to just do your own boil and be like, yeah. this is something I learned. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> you know, that's when you know who your true friends are. Oh yeah. I'll do it if I go to the next time I visit Portland and just blow everybody's mind because they'll be like, where'd yes. you pick this up? And I'll be like, well, it's a hybrid of Austin and New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of hybrids. And then uh, I got the chance to go to New Mexico and they hate Texas. <laughs> just the state? I mean, no, no. Okay. I was in Santa Fe and... Um, and they were just like, this is New Mex, New Mex, Mex. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, it's a really, it's very, all the, all the Southwest states have like really regional uh, versions of Mexican food, I feel like. like Ari territorial. Yeah, mm -hmm. Arizona has like mostly Sonoran, but like Jalisco style Mexican's really good, which is like my favorite. But yeah, New Mexico's got its own style and then Tex-Mex. 
It's right in the name. Mex Mex. New Mex Mex. Yeah. New Mex Mex. I was just like, nobody <laughs> thought this was ridiculous. Like, new, new. It's weird. It's weird because you think with like food that they would call it new New Mexican or something. You know how they're always like new. It's a new American bar, and it's like you mean they sell sixteen dollar hamburgers. It's like what. <laughs> it's like what that means. <laughs> Basically, especially in Santa Fe. Um, cool. Well, Ariel, thank you so much for linking up with me. I know you're super busy catching you at the end of the semester, but uh, super stoked on the work that you've been making. Thanks for speaking candidly about all your research and all the things that go into it. Um, I'm really excited to see just kind of what your work does over the next year. It's already like, I mean, just to think three years ago, the first stuff that I saw now, it's like so many things have happened. I, I mean, I can't imagine now that you're just you got this big studio at your disposal and that's like your job right now is just to make art. Yes, it's it's a dream and the times <laughs> it's a nightmare, but it's mostly a dream. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. Yeah, thank really you. Yeah, uh, have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you soon. You too. Okay, later. Later.